Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer and make sure we are spiritually prepared to study the word this evening which means that we need to be in fellowship. And 1 John 1, nine says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together to fellowship around the teaching of your word. We pray that as we think through this passage and what it means to uh, focus on Jesus, who is the pioneer and the completer of our faith, the one who sets the standard and who pioneered the spiritual life, that this will be indeed an opportunity for us to come to a greater understanding of the basic framework of the spiritual life, as well as be encouraged to uh, endure and to persevere in terms of not giving up in our spiritual life, no matter what the circumstances may be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles to Hebrews 12. One of the things I keep thinking about doing, or at least I've been thinking about it for two weeks, and I, ha- I just run out of time at the end of each class, is to have some opportunity maybe at the end of class for a little question and answer. Sometimes uh, questions come up or I'm not as clear or you're, you, you took a mental vacation for three seconds and missed something. And uh, so a little Q&A sometimes is good. But the last, it seems like every class I've thought about that for the last three weeks, I, I just run out of time and hardly get hardly squeeze in everything I want to say, so maybe we'll have a little time this evening. We're in Hebrews chapter 12, and we covered the first two verses in the last uh, <clears throat> last couple of weeks. Now, let's go back to verse 1 and just kind of think our way through this verse again, because this is one of those verses that appears at, at sort of first glance to be saying one thing. But when you stop and you really dig into the grammar, especially in the Greek, and you understand the metaphor that's being used here, it's actually saying something that is pretty familiar to all of us, but it's not saying what a lot of people think that this verse is saying. So 
we have a conclusion with the therefore, we also, that is, as believers, and the author includes himself in the uh, exhortation here, uh, because it's, it applies to every one of us. There's nobody, there's no apostle, there's no individual believer that ever gets to a point in the spiritual life where they are too mature to fail, where they can't uh, fall prey to just the most simple uh, set of circumstances which cause them to uh, fail, whether it's a small failure or large failure is not relevant because when you're out of fellowship, you're out of fellowship. And so we all have to uh, evaluate uh, our, our own lives and be thinking about it. That's, that's really one of, the, one of the main ideas that comes across in this, these verses from the word that is translated at the beginning of verse 2, looking at Jesus. That word is a word that emphasizes concentration and thought. And then again in verse 3, to consider him who endured, again, the word consider emphasizes careful thought and deliberation. So underneath this, the writer is challenging in this exhortation, and in terms of the structure of the book, this is the uh, last exhortation in the book, and it, it will end with a warning in the last uh, five verses. But what the writer is saying here is that what undergirds the Christian life is thought. And many times, I know you've heard it said that the spiritual life is ultimately about thinking. And that doesn't mean it's simply a cerebral activity. But it is not without the action of thinking. It is grounded in, in thought, in reflection, it's not just about collecting Bible, you know, notebooks of Bible doctrines. It's not just about thinking about your notes that you've taken in in class, but it's taking those notes as they inform your thinking and then stopping to think about what you have learned in terms of your own life and how, uh, how the principles apply to you. So the writer here is setting forth a basic basic command, which is in most English translations set at the end of verse 1, which is to let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the Christian life is viewed here as a race. The Apostle Paul used that same metaphor in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and it's used in other, other passages in Scripture that we use a race to depict the Christian life because it's a contest, it's a struggle, it demands focus, it demands discipline, it demands training, and at the end of the race, there is a reward. And there, there is the winner's wreath. And so that applies directly to the spiritual life because it is a challenge. There's opposition. That opposition comes from Satan, from the world system, and from our own sin nature. And so we have to somehow over power or surmount that cha- those challenges. We have to uh, get past the opposition, and sometimes it's very difficult. Sometimes the opposition of our own nasty little sin nature is uh, just as bad as the opposition we experience, we may experience overtly through persecution. Now, we don't usually uh, experience a lot of overt persecution in, in the United States, but there are people who live in countries and cultures all around the world 
that do experience a tremendous amount of persecution or opposition or resentment or ridicule. And if you live in certain areas of this country and and operate and live within certain uh, subcultures in this country, then you too will experience a lot of uh, overt or covert uh, opposition because you're one of those strange Bible-believing Christians and you need to be relegated to the 19th or 18th century because you're just so backward you're not up to date with anybody. So we all face these kinds of, uh, of things that challenge the race that is set before us. Now, as this sets up, you have the command, let us run with endurance, and then there's the statement before that that is translated as if it is the same kind of command, let us lay aside every weight. And this is one of those verses where it's very clear that you just have to go back to the Greek. You just can't figure out what the writer is saying completely by looking at the English text because English grammar doesn't function like Greek grammar functions. In the same way that, that if you were studying any other uh, piece of literature written in another language, you would want to make sure that you had a professor that understood the original language. If you're studying French literature, you want to have a professor that can read whatever it is you're studying in the original French. If you're studying Russian literature, you want somebody who can read uh, Dostoevsky in the original Russian. If you're reading anything in another lang- that's, that originated in another language, you know that it loses something in translation. doesn't mean you can't understand a good bit of it. I mean, the idea that uh, some people get that we shouldn't sit down and read the Bible in English because we might get confused. You know, you can sit down and read the Morning Chronicle and get more confused than reading the uh, English translation of, of, of the Bible. And yet people do that or just watching the news. I mean, you can get confused just waking up in the morning sometimes, right? So there's no excuse for not reading the Scripture, but we have to also recognize that translations have a certain limitation to them. And then there's another problem with some translations, and that is that they go beyond simply the, the, the standards or the canons for translation, and the translators actually move over into the territory of interpretation. And when you look at the at the range of translations that are available today, it just—it's it, actually mind-boggling. I, every every couple of years, somebody comes out with the latest, greatest, newest, most necessary modern English American translation of the Bible that you just can't live without. And some of them are very close to one another. And I don't know—you know—it's it's just a business, and that's this—that's sort of a negative and sad part about it. Positive part about it is. Because of capitalism, there's competition, and so you have uh, competition for better Bibles. I mean, if we didn't have that, you wouldn't have that competition, and we'd all probably still be reading the King James Version. So we have good modern translations, and some are are very good, and some are not quite so good. And you have different theories of language that inform a translation. For example, the New International Version is what's called a dynamic equivalence. 
And that really means that you, you don't necessarily translate word for word. You translate phrase for phrase, idiom for idiom. And so it can get somewhat fairly loose, uh, almost like a paraphrase in places like the Living Bible. The Living Bible, which started coming out in the late 50s, uh, was written by a Dallas Seminary graduate by the name of Ken Taylor, who was reading his Bible to his children. They didn't understand the uh, bombastic diction of the King James Bible, and so he was trying to just reword it for his children. And so he he wasn't working from the Greek or the original languages. He was just taking what was in the uh, King James, and he was paraphrasing it or putting it in a simpler form of English. Now, that's a paraphrase. That's not a translation. Uh, you have translations like the New International Version, um, the Cotton Patch Gospel, uh, which is a more extreme form of dynamic equivalence. And then uh, there's a few others. The Message, which is sort of the translation I love to hate. Um, and they get they, they, they get they try to get so down into the... Uh, Idiom of the street, and I mean the street, the hood, you know, way down into just, just uneducated, not uneducated, but, but very idiomatic slang English that it really, you, you can't really understand what the original is all about. And then you have your, what they call formal equivalence, which is the New American Standard, the, um, uh, the English Standard Translation that, uh, or ESV English Standard Version that just came out within the last couple of years. There's a Holman, uh, translation that just came out within the last year. Uh, several others, New King James Version, New King James Version. These are more formal equivalents. The problem we've got, folks, is that the more you move towards a good, strict formal equivalence, the higher the Bible is on your, uh, grade level for reading. You take a King James Bible, and they say you need to have a, that's on about a 10th or 11th grade level for reading. You take New American Standard, that's on an 8th or 9th grade uh, reading level. You take the uh, ESV, I think it's about 7th grade, but you take your paraphrases or some of the other, uh, like I think the NIV is down in about 6th grade level. And we have produced a culture of people who are so functionally illiterate that they really can't read and understand and repeat back to you in their own words most of these translations, even the ones that are down at a fifth or sixth grade level. We're so impoverished in our education system that uh, we, we, we're just not producing anybody who can, who can read and think beyond a certain grade level. I mean, for, for most people or large masses of people, uh, in this in this country, and so when you, you, one of the things that I, as a pastor, wrestle with is that, and you can just look around and see the look at the congregation, and see that um, we're not attracting a lot of twenty and thirty somethings. This is a little over their head, and that's a real struggle that other pastors and I talk about. Is we have produced a couple of generations now of people who don't think analytically like this. They weren't ever taught the first thing about grammar when they went through school or very little. I mean, to a large degree, I'm speaking in a large generalization here, but this is the trend of the culture. This is why if you go to the churches that appeal in, 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 to entertainment and to emotion, they run in the thousands. 
but the more uh, the pastor tries to really explain and teach and analyze the text, the fewer and fewer people come. And also the other and the other thing is that the older and older those congregations tend to be. And so this is a uh, this is sort of a tension that w- that we have to deal with is um, what do you do to be able to communicate to a to a younger generation that is not prepared academically to really get into the details of the Word of God and you know that's it doesn't have a simple solution of course the common solution is that you just compromise with with what they want and give them a lot of entertainment but that's not the that's that's a very poor solution and really doesn't accomplish anything so it's all of that's just an aside to point out why it's important at times to get into into the grammar and as i pointed out when we went through this in the last class you have this this uh, grammatical structure in greek where you have an aorist, usually an aorist imperative, and a that's preceded by an aorist participle. That's that's about ninety percent of it is that way, and it's called a participle of attendant circumstance. And what that basically means is that the action of the participle has to precede the the fulfillment of the action of the command. And what, when you look at a passage like this, normally what you see, and, I, and during the last week I went back and I read a lot of different commentaries, and the emphasis is, and, and they grapple, they don't really come right out and say, you know, there's a, there's a problem here with the way this is structured, and so they'll either restrict the meaning of laying aside every weight and the sin that so easily uh, ensnares us, and they try to say, okay, that just applies to the act of giving up your faith. That's it. That's all that refers to. It doesn't refer to anything else. It's, uh, uh, I read one commentary today and say just both of these terms refer to the sin of unbelief in, on the part of a, of a believer, uh, a part of, on the part of a Christian. But what, they're not grappling with the underlying grammar, which says you've got to lay, lay aside these encumbrances before you can run the race. And the picture is, as I pointed out last time, is from the, is from the Olympics and the fact that your, your runners in the Greek Olympics would come out and they would first strip off, they, they, um, they competed completely naked. They complete, they competed in the buff and they took everything off so that they didn't have any togas or any clothes or anything that could possibly trip them up or slow them down. Now, they have to take everything off before they can run. They're not going to go to the starting blocks wearing their togas, and then when the uh, signal goes off, as they start running, they start taking things off. That's how most people... uh, conceive of this verse is that as we go through the Christian life, we need to be taking sin out of our life. And that's just the old concept of spirituality by morality, pulling ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps or moral bootstraps, and that what we have to be doing is taking all, getting rid of all of these sins in our life so that we can run the race with endurance. But that doesn't fit the either, it doesn't fit the grammar or the metaphor. And I took you to two passages last time, one in James, in James chapter 1, verse, what was that, verse uh, 21, 
lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness and receive the implanted word with meekness. And then First uh, Peter 2, 1 and 2, lay aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, desire that's command there, the sincere milk of the word. In every one of those passages, you, you have the same verb, apotithemi, meaning to take something off, remove it, and then it's followed by a command that must take place after you remove these sins. And the sins in all these passages are different. And I pointed out that what that <clears throat> the way that's normally taken is, first of all, you have to clean up your life. You have to scrub out your uh, all the immorality and sin in your life before you can ever go forward in the Christian life, before you can st- take in the word or desire the word or run the way- race with endurance. You have to clean up your life. And that's just spirituality by, by works. That's spirituality by morality. What the, the point that it makes, and we have to plug it into other passages of Scripture, is this is referring to cleansing the life which comes only by confessing sin. And when we confess sin, until we sin again, the life is cleansed and we've removed these sins from our life experientially. The slate's wiped clean when we confess, and then when we sin sometime later, five seconds, five minutes two or three hours maybe. Um, but the point is that, that we ha- in a, in a, if we haven't t- dealt with this experiential sin, then we can't go forward as long as we're out of fellowship. So the command to run with endurance must be preceded by a complete removal of the easily besetting sin, which is what occurs when we, when we confess our sins. Now, the next verse, as I pointed out last time, gives us, through the use of the participle at the beginning there, gives us the means. How do you run with endurance? By looking at Jesus. And the word that's translated looking there means to put your gaze on him, to focus on him. And so how do you run with endurance? You run by thinking about Jesus. Not not like you're thinking about Jesus at that moment. This relates to the believer who sits down at times in his life, whether it's each day in a quiet time or weekly or while you're driving, and takes the time to reflect upon who Jesus is, what Jesus went through, to think about what you've learned as we've gone through all these passages in Scripture. We've talked about uh, the passage earlier in Hebrews chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 10, for it was fitting for him... That is the Father, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect or complete through suffering. Now, that word that's translated perfect is really the standard word from the teleao word group that indicates maturity. And so we see that word group, even in this passage, Jesus is the author and the uh, teleotes, the completer or finisher of our faith. He becomes the ultimate end of doctrine. We see full spiritual maturity in the character of Jesus. And so he becomes the pattern and he becomes the role model for the believer. So we don't just sit around like some Christians do in terms of the popular culture and just think in a vacuum about what would Jesus do. 
put it on a t-shirt, tattoo it on your arm or whatever. You have to think, though, in terms of learn, have content to that question. So when you think, what would Jesus do? You know the word well enough and you have to understand the thinking so that, that you can set, you can evaluate your circumstances in terms of doctrine. And it involves thinking it through, not just reading through notes, but, but internalizing it so that you, you, you've given it, uh, a degree of concentration beyond just the words that are taught by the pastor. So we're to fix our gaze, our mental gaze, our mental focus on Jesus, who's viewed as the pioneer, same word used back in Hebrews 2.10, and the uh, completer of our faith. And then in the next verse we read, who for the joy set before him, and there we have, it's translated for the, the preposition there is anti, which in some cases means against or instead of, as a, sub, a preposition of substitution. Here it means because, and in several places. So it gives the reason that Jesus was able to endure. And he, he endures because of the joy that was set before him. That, the, that word there that's translated set before him is a word that indicates the long-term goal. So as you grow and mature as a believer, you begin to understand that God is really taking you somewhere in the spiritual life. There is a destiny. There's a direction and a purpose and a plan. And sometimes when we think, and I use a phrase, God has a plan for you, that plan is not necessarily a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, this is where you're going to be and what you're going to do plan. It is a blueprint that God has for every one of us. And he plugs us into that blueprint in the same way. Now, the details are going to be different because we're all different. God's going to bring different circumstances into our lives. But we, we, the basic principle in the spiritual life is to get to this point where we can look down the road to where God is taking us and then we make decisions today in light of that future destiny. And that's been the message all through Hebrews. And we've been in this book for, what, five years, six years? And uh, this is the 200th lesson in Hebrews tonight. But that is the major theme in Hebrews is living today in light of eternity. But it takes time to develop that long-term for, uh, that foresight just as it did in as you grew up. Uh, in, your, in your life, when you were seven years old, uh, or when I was seven years old, my mother used to tell me that I need to look beyond the end of my nose. And that's the same principle. Your mother probably told you the same thing. And it's not until we get a little older into our later teen years, or maybe into our 20s, that you begin to think that, you know, there are really consequences to the decisions I make, whether they're good, good consequences or bad consequences, and I need to start thinking in terms of the consequences and long, long-term goals and directions and plans that I have for my life, and not just in terms of what makes me feel good today and what seems to get me through the day uh, as we go forward. So there's, a, there's an end game here that Jesus focused on, which is the joy set before him, and because of that then he endures the cross, which is a key word in this passage. He runs with endurance, and that's the noun, hupomenes, runs with endurance the race set before us. 
Then in, in the second verse, we have where the joy said before him, he endured the cross. That's the uh, verb form, hupomeno. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then verse 3 says, for consider him who endured, and here we have a, a participial form, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. So the, the key idea that runs through the illustration of verse 2 are, are, are the, uh, the mandate, the command of verse 1, the illustration of verse 2, which is Jesus, uh, and also, again, the illustration of Jesus in verse 3 is the idea of endurance. So I thought I would bring this chart out of mothballs tonight, and we would go back and review the basic plan and structure that God has for the spiritual life. And this comes about in three, uh, three basic stages as we look at things. First of all, there's what we refer to as phase one, which is our salvation when we are justified, when you trust Christ as Savior. And at that instant, God imputes to you the righteousness of Christ, declares you to be just, regenerate you, and you, at that point you are born again, you're a new creature in Christ, and you now start a new game. You've gone from outside the stadium, to use the race metaphor, you've gone from outside the stadium to inside the stadium, and you get to compete in the game. Your competition in the game isn't to be there. That's... That's salvation gets you there, and then it comes after that. So we go through these stages that James identifies as tests of doctrine. Now, if you just hold your place there, I want to take you back and forth to James a couple of times tonight. If you look at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, or 2 and 3, we'll just look there. Um, James says, my brethren, and then we have our first command, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing, and that's really a causal adverbial participle there that should be understood as because you know something. So you can't count it joy unless you know this principle. And it's because you know this principle that you can have joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials or tests, knowing that the testing, and that's evaluation term there, it's not a, um, the, the testing there isn't to see what, how you're going to fail. It's to show, give you an opportunity to show off what you've learned. Okay? The, uh, God's tests here are designed to give you an opportunity to, to demonstrate what you've learned uh, in, this, in your study of the Word and not to reveal that you're, you're a failure. Of course, if you haven't been paying attention and you're not learning the word, then uh, it's going to have an, uh, a negative evaluation. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And it's translated patience in the King James. Uh, endurance in the New American Standard is much better. It's, it's the word uh, hupomenes again. But it's the testing of your faith. And there it's the idea of not just testing you to see if you believe, but testing what you believe, giving you an opportunity to take what you say you believe and putting it into practice. That's the same idea that we've had all the way through Hebrews 11, is to take the promises and the principles that you learn from the Word of God 
and then to believe them and live on the basis of them. So God's going to give you tests, whether you uh, like it or not. You, every day, in many different ways, we get little spiritual pop quizzes to see if we're uh, learning and applying what we're getting out of the Scripture. So the key issue then becomes volition. We have a choice to decide, and, and that's what makes it a test, is because you have to make a decision. And sometimes these are little things, and people are not volitionally conscious. They're not volitionally aware, and so some situation occurs, and they just go into the habitual mode of either getting depressed, getting angry, becoming grumpy, um, lying, stealing, whatever it is, whatever their response is from the sin nature to handle certain uh, negative circumstances in life, that's, that's your default response pattern. And the, the issue in the Christian life is that we have to get rid of that natural, sinful, habitual, sin nature-produced default response pattern and replace it with a new response pattern. So that involves volition. Something just happened. Am I going to think in terms of this circumstance as an opportunity to glorify God, or am I going to think of this set of circumstances as just another irritation in my day and I'm not getting done what I wanted to do? And so uh, instead of uh, getting done, you know, operating on my agenda, I'm going to realize God has another plan for me today and I need to uh, get online with his agenda. So that volition thing uh, comes in all the time. So phase two involves of the spiritual life or this involves either walking by the Holy Spirit or operating under sin nature control. Okay, so that's take oh I see. I'm not seeing the same dynamic for some reason as what's going on up there. Here we go. So we have these three these two options, and according to Galatians 5, 17, we either walk by means of the Holy Spirit or we're walking by the flesh, one or the other. Paul said, uh, walk by means of the Holy Spirit, and you will not, and he uses this Greek construction, which means it's impossible to do something, uh, ume plus a subjunctive form of that verb teleao again, meaning to bring something to maturity, or to completion, he says, and it will be impossible for you to, to complete or to fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we have these two options. Now, when we look at the um, first option, let's see how this sl- slide dynamic works. Okay. We make it have an option, and, okay, we can either go in one direction, and James says that it produces... Uh, it produces life. For the, the testing of your faith produces endurance, which is uh, what we get up towards the top. It produces the testing of shape. your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect or completing work that you may be perfect and complete, uh, lacking nothing. And so we go through that whole process, and we produce, when we apply the word, it produces the evidence that God's plan is good, Romans 12, 1. Uh, it produces life, the full abundant life. It produces divine good. It produces endurance, and it leads to the adult spiritual life. 
if we operate in disobedience and sin, then it produces sin or human good, and if we stay there, it leads to temporal death or carnal death. We're not experiencing the life that God has for us. This, in turn, produces weakness or instability in our lives. This is what James is getting to in about the fifth verse when he says, if... um, or excuse me, the sixth verse, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man. He's weak and unstable. And this in turn leads to spiritual regression and produces a hardened heart. That is, if we stay in that uh, flesh-driven cycle. Now, this in turn leads to when we die in phase three, we go to the judgment seat of Christ, and that's going to lead to either rewards and inheritance, or it's going to lead to the loss of rewards and temporary shame. That's the blueprint. And every one of us follow that every day in almost every set of circumstances, and so we, the, we need to recognize what is going on in terms of our life, because God's really directing things. And I believe that he is bringing into our lives basically the things that we need to make us more, that if we respond right and apply doctrine correctly, that is what we need to to make us more like Jesus Christ in terms of our character. That's why some of us keep running into these same kinds of tests over and over again year after year, decade after decade, and you just feel like you're, you're, you're just never make it. You just never overcome. You just never seem to get past it. And you, you really are, in many ways, moving forward. It's just that we tend to look back and think that we're not making any progress. But we do, and I believe in many cases we are. And when we get to the end of our life, we can look back and, and see some of that progress that's taken place. So when we look at, the, at this passage in, in Hebrews 12, it's very much like, like what James is saying in James. So the key is we run, by, we run the race by looking, by gazing at, by thinking about Jesus, who is the pioneer, the pattern, the role maker, the, the role model for our spiritual life. And he endured the cross, because he focused on the end game, which it was the joy set before him. And that meant that he was able to reject or to ignore the shame of the cross, and the result was his glorification that he sits now at the right hand of the throne of God. Now we're going to get a further explanation starting starting in verse 3. And the writer of Hebrews says, For... Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. So he's, he's focused on one area of, of application, and that is the application of, of, of people who are being rejected, who are being despised, who are being persecuted, who are being ridiculed, who are being ostracized from their community because they're trusting in Jesus as Messiah. And that relates to these Jews who have trusted in Christ 
and they are now becoming in a minority. Now, the interesting thing about the study of of the early church in terms of history, and there's very little to go on here, is that in the initial stages of the church from a roughly 33 A.D. up until about 45 A.D., the, the makeup of the church is about 98% Jewish, maybe even higher. And then with the, after the death of Stephen and with the uh, salvation of Paul, Paul has to go back to Tarsus for a little uh, growing up training. When, when Saul returns to the church of Antioch, and from that point on, chapter 80 becomes known as, as Paul, and that from approximately the time of the first missionary journey, which is in the, in the book of Acts, is, takes place about the same time that, that you have Peter going to Cornelius, the, the Gentile Roman centurion in, in Caesarea. That is when the church, the early church had to really struggle with this concept of, well, we're all Jews and we're still following our traditions from the Old Testament, but now we have all these Gentiles who are trusting in Jesus, so what, how are the, how, how do they relate to the law? And they had this whole tension problem in the early church as to what was required of the Gentiles in the church. So you have the Jerusalem Council that followed in Acts chapter 11, and you have uh, the book of Galatians that's written at that time. But, and, but as you go through the, the next 40 years or so, or 30 years, up to the fall of Jerusalem, the church becomes de- uh, decreasingly Jewish, and the, the Christians in, in Israel, in Judea especially, become more and more ostracized. And when, when you get into the War of the Rebellion, the, the, the Jewish War of the Rebellion in 66, and especially after Titus had to, um, uh, had to back off for a little while when, uh, when, when Nero died, and they had to go back to the coast and reorganize, it was at that point that all the Christians left Jerusalem because they were thinking in terms of what Jesus had said in Luke 21, that when they saw Jerusalem surrounded, they needed to leave. And so they left. Now, after the defeat of the Jews, the destruction of the temple, the capture uh, and destruction of Jerusalem, the Jews that were not Christians did not have a real positive attitude towards the Jews that had trusted in Jesus and left Jerusalem and didn't fight and didn't defend the city because they followed what the Lord said and they left. Then as you go through the next 50 years or so up to the time of the second rebellion, the Bar Kokhba rebellion, there is still a very strong presence of Jewish believers, Jewish Christians in uh, the area of Judea and, and the Galilee. But with that second revolt, and they did not want to follow Bar Kokhba because that was a claim. Rabbi Akiva said that he was the Messiah, and they, of course, rejected that. That further ostracized them. So the, 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 right, the, the book of Hebrews is written in that period that's about six or seven years before A.D. 70, and it's in that time when Jews are becoming more and more, Jewish Christians are becoming more and more ostracized by the by the mainstream uh, 
Jewish community that was still following the teachings of the rabbis and that rejected Jesus as Messiah. So they're becoming ostracized. They're getting blamed for things. They are uh, being ridiculed by family members. And so the application here is you're going through antagonism. Jesus also went through antagonism. Look at how he endured and handled the antagonism, and that is your pattern when you face opposition, antagonism, and hostility. So the word there that is used at the beginning um, for consider is a Greek word, analogizomai. So it has a prepositional uh, prefix, ana, that is tied to the verb logizomai. Logizomai is the word that is used in uh, James chapter 1, verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy. It goes back to an accounting term to add up in your mind the various uh, various elements and put it together because you, you've thought your way through the different elements of something. So it started off as an accounting term, and it comes to mean concentrate, to reason, to reflect upon. Sometimes you'll hear some people say, well, I'm going to study on that for a while. Well, that's the idea, to, to really think through uh, what you have learned and put things together, put the different elements together. And so the writer of Hebrews says, think deeply and profoundly about how Jesus handled opposition and how he endured, he stayed in the circumstances, how he endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest... You become weary and discouraged in your soul. So there's two two end, end results. One is you can become overwhelmed by your circumstances and the opposition, and you can become discouraged and tired in your spiritual life, or you can focus on Jesus and think through how he handled things and apply what you have learned, and then you're not weary and you're not discouraged by those who uh, oppose you and those who have rejected you. So those are the two, uh, the two options that, that you have. And what makes the difference is whether you are not just thinking doctrine, not just reading over your notes, but where you truly internalized the thought process, the mental attitude, and the focus so that when you do go through that, and it's not easy, and nobody likes rejection. Nobody likes it when people who they wish respected them and liked them, don't like them and treat them harshly. Uh, nobody likes that. Everybody feels badly about that. That's a normal reaction. That's not, there's nothing wrong with that reaction. It's when we let that reaction control our behavior beyond the initial uh, incident. We have to say, okay, fine. They're, they don't want, to, and we may have to tell ourselves that 15, 20, 30 50, 100 times, but that's, that's the process. We keep going back to doctrine, repeating it, and retraining our thinking to think about circumstances the way God would have us to, to think about things. And so that's all involved in that whole concept of, of uh, analogizomai. Now, the writer has an interesting way of kind of playing on words here because he, he uses that word analogizomai for consider him, who endured such hostility, and the word he uses for hostility is antilogia. 
which has very similar components. It sounds, sounds similar. It's a preposition on T plus the word logia, which also comes from logos, or word, which is where you get on a logizomai. These are all somewhat related words. But this word has to do, anti has to do with opposition, and those, and logia has to do with words, so it came to mean uh, opposition. Those were speaking against you, those were rebelling against you, and opposition are, have put themselves in an adversarial, uh, adversarial position. And the result is that lest you become weary and discouraged. Now here's an r- interesting word here that we only find twice in the New Testament. And that's this word that's translated weary. It's the Greek word komno, K-A-M-N-O, komno. It's used here and it's used in James 5.15. Now, I want to pay attention to this verse for a second. If we don't focus on Jesus and you focus on the details of life and the circumstances and the people and the rejection, the result is it gets tiresome, you get discouraged in your spiritual life, and you're weary. You just get up and the running the race isn't fun anymore because of the hostility. And this leads to where you're just defeated spiritually. But it doesn't have anything to do with being physically ill. Now hold your place there and turn to James five, fifteen. Now I've gone through this passage in detail before. So I'm not going to do that tonight, but this is one of those passages that people always stumble over when they read through James or they read through the New Testament, and they think that this passage has something to do with getting healed physically. And it doesn't have anything to do with getting healed physically. He's not talking about that. It's not even talking about psychosomatic illness. Everybody wants to somehow try to uh, rationalize this passage into getting something physical in here, and it's not there. Forget about it. Nothing works. It's not about physical problems at all. It's about a spiritual problem. And at the end of this epistle where James is challenging people to endure, the flip side of endurance, again, is the same thing we see in Hebrews 12. If you don't endure, you're going to uh, be weary, discouraged, defeated in your spiritual life. So he begins with the question, is anyone among you suffering? That's the idea if you can counter various trials. What's the solution? Prayer. Is anyone cheerful? Well, great. Sing, sing psalms. It's great to be cheerful and joyful over your uh, circumstances and to express that. And then the third question is, is anyone among you sick? Now, the word there that's translated sick is a Greek word that can mean either physical sickness or spiritually weak. Uh, it's used that way, spiritual weakness, by Jesus when he says that the uh, body's, uh, or the, the uh, soul is willing, but the flesh is weak. It has that idea of not sick, but just physically weak. Most of the time in the Gospels, though, the word means physically ill, but most of the time in the epistles, it means to be spiritually weary. So it, 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 it can go either way, physical or spiritual weariness, context has to determine. Now, if you look down to verse 15, we read in the most English translations, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. In English, it's the same word that you have in verse 14, but in Greek, it's not the same word you have in verse 14. And the word that you have in verse verse 15 
is a smaller, has a narrower range of meaning than the word in verse 14, and it's going to tell you which way do you go, physical or spiritual. Well, the word that's used for sick in verse 15 is that word we just saw in Hebrews, komno, and it means weary. So if you retranslate the prayer of faith will save the weary, all of a sudden you realize that verse 15 it isn't talk, it doesn't, re, doesn't confirm the fact you're talking about sick people. It confirms the fact you're talking about weary people. You're talking about people who are getting worn out in their spiritual life because they're not enduring. So the prayer of faith will save, and save doesn't always mean justification. In many cases, it's used to refer to uh, being delivered from a set of circumstances and thus refers to the phase two of the spiritual life. So the prayer of faith will save the weary And the Lord will lift him up. That's a better term there, lift him up. In other words, you're spiritually refreshed via the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And if there are sins that are associated with this, then you'll be forgiven because sometimes sin enters in, and that's part of the reason you feel beat up and defeated and overrun in the spiritual life is because of of guilt or because your sins aren't forgiven, um, and so there's spiritual failure there. Let's go back to Hebrews. So in Hebrews 12.3 we read, Consider the one who endured hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. So if you don't want to be weary and discouraged, the solution isn't to go to counseling. It's not to go listen to one of these uh, uh, guys like Bradshaw on PBS. It's not to find the latest, greatest technique in um, uh and in, in psych, psychology, it's to focus on the Word of God. The solution is simple. It is the Word of God and focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, if you want to not be weary and discouraged in your souls, and the, that's how it's translated there, and it refers to that same weakness of soul that James gets at when he uses that word uh, being uh, double-minded. It's literally disukos or being two-souled. And then the writer throws in this point, says, you know, you have not resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. The point is, Jesus resisted to bloodshed, and he didn't fail. He didn't fade out. Jesus resisted to the point of death. So what he's, what he's telling his audience is, you only think you've handled this, but, but you haven't. And you've forgotten the exhortation, verse 5, the exhortation that speaks to us as to sons. And then he's going to quote from uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Now, the key word, I think, that we find in this particular uh, quotation that, that really helps us to understand it goes back to uh, the Hebrew. Uh, if you, if you, we, uh, we're almost out of time, so I'm just going to touch this tonight and come back to it next time, where we read in Proverbs 3.11, My son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord. It's chastening in uh, Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 5. Uh, 12.5, but it is, in the, in the Hebrew, it's discipline, and it comes from a, a Hebrew word, musar. 
What's interesting about this is that the root meaning of that word is to bind or to restrict. And so when somebody was thrown into irons and put into prison, that's the word that is used. Now, a lot of people think that's exactly what discipline is. It just restricts them too much and they can't have any fun in life. But the idea of discipline is to channel, is to control our sin nature so we can channel our abilities to produce for God. And that is the idea. It's, it's training. And the word that we find in the um, second part of verse 5 uh, it's translated, nor be discouraged when you are, uh, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. That word is translated, uh, is a translation of a Greek word, paideia. And paideia refers to the parental training of a child so that when they are mature, they can successfully face the challenges of life. And that's what divine discipline is. It's not just getting a spanking from Jesus. Divine discipline is the Lord training us in terms of uh, this whole plan and procedure so that the end result of our life produces something that is uh, rewardable and part of our inheritance at the judgment seat of Christ. It's you just when you didn't know this, when you trusted Christ as Savior, they just told you you were going to get eternal life. They didn't say you were getting ready to go to spiritual boot camp in the Marine Corps. And God is a better drill sergeant than any Marine drill sergeant. He knows exactly how to take you through all the drills you need to go through in order to learn to trust him so that when you come out the other end, which is when we're glorified and we're going to serve and rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have matured and we're responsible and we know how to lead and we know how to carry out the responsibilities that we're going to be given. So from the day you were saved until the day you die, I hate to tell you this, but you're just, you're at Paris Island for that whole time. You are going through Marine Corps boot camp, spiritually speaking. Every one of us is. And that's what paideia is. And that's what chastening is. It's training. It's discipline. It is teaching us to uh, restrict, control the lust of the flesh, our sin natures, and to focus on responding to what God has for us in the spiritual life. So now I said I'm going to start having question and answers. So I don't know if anybody has any questions. Calvin. In your series on dispensations, you teach that... Uh, Nothing that an unbeliever can do can be part of the spiritual life. Right. Could you expand on that as soon as we The example you used is morality. Yeah, morality. I mean, you've got a lot of very fine moral people out there. So the spiritual life isn't morality. Morality being uh, able the ability to observe a code of ethics or a code of conduct. And you had, for example, in, in, uh, in Galatians with the, with the Judaizers, the Judaizers came in, they said, well, Paul kind of got the gospel right, but it's missing something. And what it's missing is you've got to, if you're going to really uh, experience everything God has for you, and that's kind of the phrase we run into in modern times, then you have to apply the law. You've got to, men have to be circumcised, and you have to go through all of the Jewish ritual as well. Then you're really going to be living 
the super spiritual life. And that's a focus on, that's a focus on just, just morality. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 3.3, 3, you began in, by means of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerated you. Are you going to continue? And, 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 and he uses the same word, teleos uh, 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 there, teleao. Are you going to continue in the flesh? Are you going to mature in the flesh? So you, we, while the spiritual life isn't, uh, it's not anti-morality, it's not antinomianism or lawlessness or immorality, morality isn't enough. It's got to be, you've got to be in fellowship and, and walking by the Spirit. That's what makes the difference between the, the unbeliever who goes to a religious service and who is moral and it doesn't count anything for God, and a believer who's out of fellowship, and he does the same thing. He reads his Bible, he witnesses, he prays, but as David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. It's all morality, but it's not getting him anywhere in terms of his spiritual life because he's doing it in the power of the flesh. You're either that, That's where you get the whole idea that the flesh can produce good things, and that's where Paul really drives in Galatians is he raises that issue in Galatians 3.3 using all of that, that, the key terminology, the spirit, the flesh, and the verb teleao, reaching maturity. He doesn't come back to that terminology until Galatians 5.17 where he makes it clear that you're either one way or you're the other way. It's either the work of the flesh or the work of the Holy Spirit. And in Romans 7, Paul realized that no matter how much he focused, and Romans 7 is, is Paul's early experience as a believer, no matter how much he tried to be spiritually mature and right by just obeying the law, ultimately what it exposed was that, that there, was, there was arrogance behind it. And arrogance always leads eventually to, to the works of the flesh, where you have disunity and all, all the sins that are listed there in um, 19, verse 19 and 20. Does that answer your question? Okay. All right, well, let's close in prayer. We have time for one question. Lord, thank you for this time that we've had to uh, study your word this evening, to be encouraged by the example our Lord Jesus Christ is, is the one who set the pattern and the focus for uh, the spiritual life. And he showed that uh, as he faced the various uh, tests and challenges in his spiritual life, that by applying the word uh, and walking by the Spirit, not relying on his deity, but uh, relying upon the word and the indwelling and filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, he was able to surmount those challenges to demonstrate for us that we can do it just the same way because we have the same resources. And that set the pattern for the spiritual life. We pray that you'd encourage us with what we study tonight. In Christ's name, amen.